When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. So we took a week off because it was really busy, and this week is no less busy, so we figured we'd just do a podcast. Yeah, because uh, what's better than that? Um, and there's a lot of stuff for us to talk about. Uh, first, we're probably going to start with Frankfurt, but before we get there, uh, we need to talk about cars because we've been driving some. And Sam, uh, you have a car that I stare at every time I see one because it's beautiful. And for by all accounts, it's a fantastic driver's car, which is quite a change from um, Lexus. So you've got the, the LC500. Tell us more. That's right. Um, I, I was actually last week I was driving the, uh, the LC 500 and, uh, we'll get into this week's car next week. Um, but, uh, yeah, the LC 500 is, you know, it's, I think probably the best looking car that Lexus has ever built. You know, it's, it's a stunning coupe. Um, you know, it's got hint, you know, it, it kind of, in some ways, uh, you know, when I first saw it, you know, I, I thought, you know, I thought of it as kind of a throwback to the original first generation SC of the early nineties. Yeah. Which is not a bad thing in its own right. Right. Yeah. And, and then combined with elements of the, the LFA, uh, which, you know, was obviously short lived. <clears throat> no, they only built 500 of them. Um, and, but, you know, so the, the LC, you know, takes, takes elements of the LFA, especially in its proportions and some of the details, uh, you know, things like the, uh, the vents in front of the rear wheels, uh, you know, the rocker panel vents, um, but, you know, it puts everything together in just a, a really beautiful way. You know, it's got fantastic proportions, you know, and the, the thing about this car is, you know, as, as a, as a luxury coupe you know it's it's you know as a modern luxury coupe it's you know it's on the on the heavy side it's like 4200 pounds so it's it's not really a sports car but it, it really is you know a grand touring coupe in in the in the classic style you know kind of you know what you would think of uh you know like a ferrari daytona you know that sort of thing you know as a, a classic grand touring coupe um you know, it's it's not as as hardcore as an LFA, um, you know, but it's it's got some really impressive performance. Uh, it, the one I drove was the standard LC 500, which has um, the a, an updated version of the five liter V8 that you find in the ISF and the RCF and the the GSF. Um, 
471 horsepower, 398 foot-pounds of torque, I think. Um, it, so it's you know a few more horsepower and foot-pounds than uh, the others. But um, uh, now with a 10-speed automatic transmission, uh, which you know you can control it with the, the metal paddles on the back of the steering wheel, um, or you know tap the the shift lever. Um, it's the transmission's very responsive. You know when you tap the the paddles, it it goes right away. Um, and you know the part of part of why I, you know call it a grand touring coupe as opposed to a sports car is you know when you're just cruising around. You know if you're taking a road trip or whatever. You know it's it's got the classic lexus serenity nice and quiet you know but throw it into sport mode and step on it and you know it's just got a you know a marvelous roar not not the sort of rumble you get from a big american v8 typically but um you know more of a, a european style you know high performance v8 uh sound and it's just it's a really wonderful car to drive very responsive um never never harsh you know even on the the very low profile tires that were on this thing uh it always stayed comfortable to to, to ride in even over the worst roads um the one you know as a as a grand touring coupe you know it's, it's something that you might want to take for a road trip uh you know one downside is the um the trunk is very small it's like five and a half cubic feet and very shallow uh, you could you could get a couple of carry-on bags in there as long as they're not you know overstuffed, um, but uh, you can actually use the back seat uh, you know for more stuff you know for you and your partner if you want to, because you're certainly not going to put any actual human beings back. Yeah, there. At, least, at least not anybody that you like. Right, it's got a Hollywood trunk, small and shallow, just like all the people there. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, but you know, the, the idea that Grand Touring is like a pejorative term too like let's let's dispel that anyway oh, absolutely not grand touring right grand touring ferraris are the best ferraris a because they're front engined but also b because they're the ones that you can you can live with and that's i think that's the same thing here like this is it's a very livable car is beautiful it's definitely quick but it's it, it's not tiresome in that sense like it's not a car you want to take to a track day but it's a car that you want to take you know for um say a road trip through the mountains of virginia right and if you took it to a track day it wouldn't necessarily embarrass itself either no. so like that's it's not the ideal mount for something like that so the one thing that's been consistent throughout Lexus's history, or at least one of the things that's been consistent, is that their suspension tuning has been knocked as floaty. Now, I haven't had that criticism uh, of the the last few sort of serious Lexus cars I drove. Uh, you know, the IS and the GS certainly didn't seem terribly floaty like those original LS models did. Uh it seems like from what you're saying they've got this actually nailed down they've they've figured out how to make it ride and handle like an actual you know high-end gt oh yeah absolutely and in fact most of the most of the recent lexuses i've driven you know especially you know like the f sport models you know have had a, a really well controlled uh suspension good you know good body control good wheel control um you know they, they did not have any of that floatiness of of old school LSs of the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, you still have that that level of refinement. You know, I don't know if you if you remember some of those early Lexus commercials, you know, yes. have a, a stack of champagne glasses, you know, stacked right. up on the, on the engine while it was running. Uh, you know, and you still have that that smoothness and refinement, 
you know, and, you know, one of the things, you know, in this car, even though it's, you know, it's a fairly large displacement V8, you know, you never feel any of that characteristic, um, uh, you know, wobbling that you get, you know, that you get with a typical American V8, you know, that, that wobble that, you know, feels like a heartbeat. You never yeah. have any of that, you know, at idle. This thing is absolutely smooth. It's, you know, it's almost, even though, it, you know, it's not shutting off the engine, it feels like it, you know, I mean, there's no, there's no indication that, that anything's happening, you know, ex until you step on it and then it just goes. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think the, the Lexus had that I remember the most is the one where they have the car and like this giant gimbal and they roll a ball bearing around the body seams, which, <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's just it's marketing nonsense in the, the most like 90s sense. But um, it's funny, Lexus actually compares the handling of this of the LC500 to the Aston Martin DB11. And so um, given your expert opinion, I mean, how do you think it matches up to the DB11? I'm, I'm kidding. I'm sure. Well, <laughs> I haven't driven an Aston, so I, I think that's something Aston Martin needs to rectify. They need to get you a DB11 so you can compare. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I just like that's again, like we haven't given up the marketing hyperbole because um, it that just strikes me as, as being a, a little bit ridiculous. I mean, the, the at ninety two thousand, it's not like the the LC five hundred is cheap, but it's also not it's not as expensive as that once seemed. Half the price of a DB eleven. Yeah, well, and and ninety two K, well, it doesn't buy as much car as it used to, but it sure buys a lot of two door GT. I mean, how did how did, overall how does this car? measure up you know i'd say you know if i was in the market for you know for a, a high performance luxury gt um you know i would certainly give this you know you know if if i was cross shopping it against an aston uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that i would necessarily choose it over the aston but it would certainly yeah. be worthy of consideration um i mean there's there's something about a, a you know a british gt with a big v12 engine you know that is is always going to be you know have an advantage but uh yeah it's it's nice it's it's yeah it, it doesn't feel you know like, like for example you know in an aston you know you've got you know different kinds of woods and and leather trim um than what you get in this you know this this definitely feels in a lot of respects you know more more lexus more japanese um but you know that's that's not to denigrate it in any way you know it's i think it's a fantastic car yeah, I don't know. Does it have and and tune or whatever Lexus calls it? They're they're like terrible, terrible um, infotainment, or is that better too? Yes. No, it's 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 still pretty awful. Ah, uh, that's, that's too bad. It's, yeah, it's Lexus and form, I think. And form, to right? Toyota's and tune, and Lexus's and form. And so I, yeah, I screwed that up all the time. The one other, you know, one other complaint that I have about this is <clears throat> um, for the. The control interface for the uh, for the infotainment is the touchpad that they've been using on a bunch of their cars recently. Oh right, yeah. And you know, it still has the, the haptic feedback system in there. I mean, you know, they they've had you know prior to the touchpad, they used this little stubby joystick thing that was sort of a combination of a joystick and a mouse. You know, and it had a haptic feedback built in. You know, when you got to what would uh, you know what would be the the touch targets if it had a touch screen you know it kind of clicks into place and you, so you can kind of do it by feel and they've they've tried to replicate that in the touchpad but it just doesn't work as well in the touchpad I, I wish they'd go back to the previous setup i think that worked better i so i liked that previous like the little joystick thingy but i also felt like 
it has this sense of disconnection. It, I always like struggled with it. Like I want to go faster. No, now it's going too fast. It just, I don't know. Nobody's going to come up with a there perfect a, interface. Yeah, there, there is some nonlinearity to it. I still think the rotary controllers like iDrive and, um, you know, Audi MMI, especially the latest generation MMI, I think are, are still better than any of these. Yeah. Well, and MMI was, was fantastic the last time. I uh, drove an Audi and it's funny speaking with a colleague um, who's not really super into cars, but she got a, a newer, um, a newer Audi when hers was in the shop. Um, it, it also had the little MMI thing with the like finger, the, the, the handwriting recognition and stuff. And it, it was interesting to see how uh, her experience measured up from as just like a pure consumer. And it was, it was funny. It was sort of like the same, um, same reaction I had was like, oh yeah, the handwriting recognition, it's, it's actually good. Look at that. It recognizes my words and, and it's really easy to get into. And just the amount of ways you can provide input to those systems that, and, and BMW is the same way. And, and, uh, command is also the same way. Um, there's a, a few different ways to get what you want into and out of those systems. Uh, the, the Lexus and Toyota systems are a lot more limited and they're, they're a little bit more frustrating to use. They're, kind of dumber <laughs> um, yeah. they're slower the the, Ger the germans have moved towards and also uh infinity as well have all moved towards uh multimodal setups where you know in most cases you have a touchscreen available and you have the rotary control knob and and you have that the the touch interface for entering letters and numbers uh so you've got multiple different ways to interface with it you know depending on whatever your personal preference is yeah and the more i use them my personal preference continues to just tilt toward like none of this stuff i just <laughs> i just want nothing just give me a rotary volume dial G yeah give me a knob give me give me two knobs for, for you know one for volume one for tuning a couple more for the heating system and then we're, and we're we're good to go uh, especially now that there's there's more and more evidence. Uh, I, I, was it NHTSA or IAHS or something last week? Somebody published some sort of report that <laughs> said, like, distracted driving is a problem and the technology in cars is causing it. It's like, yeah, no kidding. You need to do a study for that? Come on. Um, I, yeah, I, I, uh, I know it makes me sound like I've got like a, a lawn I'm trying to protect, but, um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very valid, um, argument, you know, because, you know, at least, you know, up, up until the time when, you know, we can just shut off and, and let the car do the driving, um, you know, we're still responsible for controlling that car. And if you have to put excessive cognitive effort into, you know, changing the station you want to listen to, or, you know, or just changing the volume, you know, yeah, that's that's not a good thing. I mean, you, you, those are things that you should be able to do without even really thinking about it. Yeah. You know, they should be trivial things that, you know, you just tap on a button, twist a knob, whatever, you know, to to turn the volume up or down, change the station, you know, or whatever it is you want to do without having to take your focus away from the actual act of driving. Yeah, I mean, it gets to the point where, like, even if you just want to adjust the volume and you want to use the steering wheel controls, you got to look at the spokes because there's so much crap on there now. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, I, I have to study, like, how do I turn on the cruise control on this thing? Because there's like six buttons for the cruise. Mm -hmm. um, okay, I feel better. Set, you know, resume, cancel, up, down. Well, in distance. Set the gap, you know, yeah. the ACC. Yeah, it's just, I feel better now. 
I've, yeah. I've, it's been cathartic and I have, uh, I've been driving. I spent last week in the, the Kia Nero, um, Nero touring. what do you think of the Nero? I'm very impressed with the Nero. Um, they, they're, it's one of those cars that kind of lives up to its press release. Um, I, which I was, I was reading through it and they, you're saying like, oh, we're very excited about it. It's, it's got great looks. It has exceptional fuel economy. It's useful and it's actually fun to drive. I was like, you know, damn it. I actually agree with all of those points. Um, it is fun to drive. It uh, it has better steering than the Elantra Sport, um, which I feel kind of bad saying, but it, it it does have a little bit more feedback from the helm, um, or at least that was my impression. I didn't drive them back to back, so I may be completely full of crap, but I might. No, I, I think you're right because I'm, I'm actually driving the Elantra Sport right now. And I, I agree with you. The, the the Nero did have better steering feel. Oh, good. I haven't lost my edge yet. Excellent. <laughs> At least maybe that part of it. Well, I um, necessarily say that. Right, right, right. Uh, no, I mean, it, it returned like 47, 48, almost 50 miles per gallon. I could have probably returned an average of 50 miles per gallon with it uh, if I had taken it a little easier. Um, and it, it it doesn't make you suffer for that either it is fun to drive it 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 rides really well the the ride is super well controlled and and um even over you know high frequency stuff which tends to to give uh, hybrids in particular some fits there because they're either like super soft like a prius where they they do glide over high frequency like rough pavement kind of stuff but they also suck because you go into a corner and they're like, they have low low performance tires on them and they roll over a bunch and it's just it's a very crappy driving experience from an enthusiast perspective. Um, the the Nero wasn't like that at all. It felt actually very European in its in its tuning. Um, it, just a a well well thought out car that was well tuned and well set up regardless of its propulsion system. You know, I, I was like, this thing would be delightful with a tiny motor and a five speed i'd be fine with that <laughs> you know like uh it's just a it's a good basic car and it has a pretty the, the structure felt solid um you know and the the hybrid stuff hyundai's hybrid i've i like it a lot uh because it has an actual transmission i think that that feels better to me than cvt's it, it, it does feel more natural than than other blended hybrid systems yeah um I did notice every now and then there was a shutter or like just some sort of clunky handoff. Uh, but I think no matter how seamless they are, kind of every hybrid is going to have those moments from time to time. So I, I can't really knock it for that. Um, and uh, my biggest complaint really just comes down to the, the brakes and it's that regen versus friction braking thing. And I do this in every hybrid. It feels like it's braking stronger than I actually am. <laughs> so uh, I spend the first couple of days recalibrating um, because, you know, regen feels like strong braking and you just you notice like, hey, my my closing speed is still too high. Uh, so then you have to step on it a little bit more and engage the friction brakes. Um, and, and once you figure that out a little bit and that's like on a per car thing, it, it's not it's not an issue. Um the nice thing about the Nero is that, and, and the thing is, you know, for most people, you know, that aren't jumping into a different car every week, you know, you're going to get accustomed to that, and you know, you're going to be driving the same car for several years. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and you know, the nice thing about the Nero is that it's 
it's got some of that crossover styling to it, but it's really it's a it's a hatchback. It's a it's a compact wagon, I guess, if you want to think about it. It's it's wide. It's relatively low. It's easy to get in and out of. Easy to load stuff in. The the um, the visibility is really good out of it. Um, the the belt line, uh, uh, the cowl is is pretty low for a modern car. So I, I felt like it was just it did all of those things that I love about you know cars like the Mark One and Two Golfs. Hmm. Um, it just it had a lot of that stuff that was just just right. You know, sort of like solid fundamentals. Um, and the the hybrid stuff is completely unobtrusive; doesn't get in the way. Uh, you know, the, the car is designed for it, so it's it's not like it sucks up cargo space or anything like that. It's a really clever package, a really well done car. And in touring trim, it's it's nice, and it's still kind of a bargain because it was like thirty two on the sticker, thirty two five. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's loaded. I mean, you can, yeah. you know, like the FE that I drove was <clears throat> like 23. Right. Delivery charge. Right. Well, that's 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 a crazy aggressive price for a car that's good, because most of the stuff that makes the touring like it makes it nice with the leather seats and the nicer trim. And uh, I think it also has the larger screen and the, the better infotainment system and, and navigation, which is also all pretty easy to use which is a key. And if, if Hyundai can do it, then everybody else should be able to do it <laughs> because it's, they're, they're not, you know, they're not a super high end brand and they have consistently put out very good infotainment and solid ergonomics in all their cars over the last five years. So, uh, they must just be driven enough to <laughs> really want it. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, you know, Hyundai and Kia were the first ones to launch um, Android Auto and Apple CarPlay, you know, to have vehicles that supported both of those, um, you know, long before any of the other brands. And, uh, you know, they've their their interface that they've got, you know, on their current vehicles, you know, is not it's not fancy. It's it's but it's simple and easy to use, um, you know, and they, they've they execute really well on really, you know, fundamental things, basic things like, you know, making sure that the uh, the screens, the displays that they use, you know, are low glare, you know, so when the sun's shining in from the side, you know, at certain times of the day, you know, it doesn't get washed out, you know, so they're, they're bright enough that you can see them in, in all conditions, you know, they don't get, you don't, you don't get washed out when you're, if you're wearing polarized sunglasses and things like that. So, I mean, they, they just execute really well on the fundamentals. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, I like that it has spirit in it. it. It's it's a car that, as an enthusiast, I could still I could still get behind. I go, well, this is this is a fine choice. Yeah, you know, it's it's practical, sure, but uh, it's it's still enjoyable to drive, uh, even, even even with bad hybrid tires on it. Yeah. Um, and it, my I think my favorite features. I was also very impressed with the the smart cruise control, although it it. Um, it doesn't do stop and go, and, and we've talked about that before. And that's that's likely just a cost thing at this point. And just the system probably has a single camera or a single sensor or whatever. Yeah, uh, that's, that's fine. It's a longer range radar unit. Yeah. Um, so you know they didn't use a uh, a short range radar to give it the full stop and go capability. I mean that that's fine. At thirty two thousand dollars, I'll forgive that. And and. Uh, my favorite feature really, I think, was like the wireless phone charger. I can just toss my phone in there on the QI pad and have it charged. Not every car has that, but they should. Like it's they're, they're starting that's starting to become a lot more common. You know, a lot of new cars have those at least at least on the upper trim levels now. 
I mean, it's been around for so long, too. I, I just I like that feature a lot because it's, you know, one fewer set of wires I got to have in the in the interior because um, God knows you, you can't drive without charging your phone. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's a it's a good car i was i was i expected to be impressed with it and i was more impressed with it than i thought i would be um so yeah i i give a solid nod to the nero i'd like to drive the ionic and see how that compares because they're mostly the same engineering yeah i mean mechanically they're they're identical you know i think that the main the main difference you'll notice you know, and the driving is just that the, you know, and you sit a little bit lower in the Ionic. Um, you know, it's it's even more, you know, more standard car. You know, the 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 Nero rides a little bit higher. Um, you know, to give it a little more of that crossover look. You know, but it's not it's not as tall as most crossovers. So it's kind of kind of an in between. Um, but other than that, you know, it it drives pretty much the same i mean it's exactly the same powertrain the same suspension setup and same tires so so there you go it'll drive just as satisfying so the, the ionic is the car for the prius owner who actually likes to drive yes um because it kind of looks like a prius but if it drives like this then that's 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 a plus so <laughs> <laughs> um all right well so it's very very fun garage did did we want to tee up next week's cars or not i think we can move on at this point but yeah let's move on we'll right. get those next time okay uh speaking of cars though there was uh, a big show in in frankfurt um the frankfurt motor show was uh, or at least the press previews were this week <clears throat> and um uh there was uh, quite a bit of stuff there. Some some interesting things. Yeah. Well, and that was uh, we we solicited uh, questions on Twitter, and that was somebody's somebody's question was like, "What's our favorite stuff from there?" So we should touch on that. But sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So so did you have did you have a personal favorite of the stuff that came out this week? Uh, oh, the Honda, the Honda Urban EV. I I love that that's, thing. That's pretty cool. It's super. It's so clean and just. It's a pretty. I hate the interior, but the outside is just great. <laughs> Well, I think the the impression I get, uh, you know, from the interior, you know, for those who haven't seen it, you know, it's it's basically two bench seats, uh, front and rear bench seats, and it's it's a two door with uh, rear hinged doors, so you actually get surprisingly good um, access, you know, to both the front and rear seats, even though it's a pretty small car. Yeah. Do you think that that's actually going to make production, or is that the typical sh uh, car show suicide door setup? Um. My guess is this car probably won't make production in that form. It'll probably come with more conventional doors and yeah. you know, more conventional seating. But I think, you know, probably what they were doing here was kind of experimenting a little bit with, you know, layouts for a future uh, autonomous mobility vehicle. Because this sort of layout, you know, with the rear hinge doors, you know, fairly large size doors um, hinged at the back. And then, you know, the, the bench seats is actually going to give you pretty good um, you know, access to both the front and rear seats, you know, good ingress and egress, uh, you know, which would make it, you know, you, it's easy to slide in and out. You know, if you think about an autonomous, you know, urban mobility vehicle, you know, you're not going to be um, driving around and cornering at high speeds, you know, and something like that. So you don't, you don't really need, you know, form fitting bucket seats or anything like that. So um, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting design choice. And, you know, I think, 
eventually we'll see cars like that, um, you know, and we'll probably see something from Honda like that. But I think the the production version of this car when it arrives uh, in 2019, uh, I think is what they said. Yeah. And and in, they haven't given any indication of whether it's going to come to the U.S. market. Uh, I think it probably won't. Right. All assumptions are that it it won't. And that's that's so so sad. Why does everybody else consistently for decades get the best Hondas except for us? We, we couldn't get the, the beat. It took us forever to get the fit. Like, why, why don't we get good Hondas here? Um, because Americans won't buy them. <sighs> Maybe if they brought them here, we'd buy them. <laughs> I know that's that's a crappy argument. I I, I mean, this car, I, I don't. I don't know that I want to see this particular show car make the transition to production if it's going to get screwed up because uh, it's it's such a like it's a pure form on it, which I think is one of the reasons why I'm really uh, impressed by it. Um, and, you know, the interior itself is with like the large screen that stretches across the front of the cabin. Like that's clearly not going to be production. So by the time. Right. And, and that's part of why I think, you know, the the interior that they did here you know, is more of a look at where they would go with that sort of urban mobility vehicle, you know, 10, 15 years from now, as opposed to what we're going to see as a production car in two or three years. Yeah. And there really, there's not too much detail. There hasn't been too much detail provided about this car other than, hey, look, it's a neat styling exercise. Reminds you of the the CVCC Civics. Um, We don't know too much about you know the, the propulsion system and that stuff do we or did i just miss it because no, I, they, they haven't really said any any mechanical details about the thing so we have no idea what the range is going to be you know what what kind of power it's going to have um my guess is you know just based on the size you know this is likely going to be you know a shorter range you know 100 to 120 mile range uh, you know city car as opposed to you know something like the bolt or um, you know the the new even the new leaf you know which is more of a an all around car. Yeah. So I mean I I hope that they can be um, persuaded to bring this to the U.S. But I don't hold out hope. And if they actually build well, it, I hope they don't screw it up. Actually, I, I wouldn't entirely rule it out coming to the U.S. Um, because you know they they do have they are going to have to sell more EVs here to meet the the California um, zero emission vehicle mandates, and right now the only battery electric car that they have in the fleet here is the Clarity Electric, which only has like an eighty four mile range, right? Five mile range, and it's only available in California, is it? Isn't it? Or is yeah, it? California and and a handful of other states that are following the California rules. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's not going to, that one's not going to be available nationwide, you know, so I I wouldn't rule out something like this car, you know, production version of this car coming here, um, at least again, at least for California, you know, that's probably, you know, where it'll be the most popular. Although, you know, something like this could be, could be a hit, you know, in places like New York as well. Yeah. I, I, I just, I love it. I, 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 I. I like its design purity. Um, I'm on a kick right now for for design purity. Regardless, I have uh, instructed my um, my staff uh, <laughs> to when we design things as a starting point, go with Bauhaus. 
not Beaux-Arts. <laughs> so uh, just, you know, very clean and, and functional. Um, and I think that's what, what really draws me to it. Uh, and then it's got thin pillars and great proportions. And, uh, so as a d- design, I like the Honda Urban EV. But I, what was your favorite from the show? My favorite was the Kia Proceed. That's not hard to love. Not at all. <laughs> um, Again, though, another car that we'll probably never see on America. You don't think they'll bring it here? No. They've been very aggressive about um, really building out their lineup. I mean, I, I'm shocked that they're they made a coupe and <laughs> just all, all of the all of the moves that both Hyundai and Kia have made have, have been they they really want to own a larger slice of the market. So. Yeah, but they're they're gonna they're moving more aggressively on expanding their utility lineup over here. You know, so we're gonna see uh, the Stonic or however you pronounce that. You know, their subcompact utility uh, coming here next year. Um, you know, I think they're they're just again. You know, this is one of those you know shooting break. Um, you know, a state car type of design that is just not going to appeal to American drivers. I think the only way we would ever see this car here is if they added some black wheel arch extensions and jacked it up about two inches. I that uh, that would be and called and called it the Proceed Tour X. That'd be cool in its own right. I think like <laughs> not as cool as something this sleek for sure. But yeah, I mean, you know, this this is just a stunning machine. I mean, I would love to have a car like this. you know what I love about it. Uh, and I, I kind of love this about uh, Kia overall is um, they're giving you premium design like the, it's the best design doesn't have to cost the most money. Uh, you look at uh, yeah. any Kia out there right now. Um, I mean, the, the Sportage looks like a damn Porsche. It's just yeah, no, absolutely. It, it it does it does look like a you know it's got a lot of hints of the Macan. Yeah. Um. So I love that. That's like it's great design for the masses because really when you when you think about it, like why should the why should you have to pay more for for great design? And I understand that part of the thing that you pay for is the great design, but uh, that doesn't mean that it has to be exclusive like that. And and you think back through. Uh, through history, some of the most iconic and best designs are, are, you know, super easily accessible things like the Coca-Cola bottle, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's an, it's one of those things like we're going to just, they're, they're committing to making great design a part of what that brand means and what that brand is. And, and I'm, I'm impressed and I continue to be impressed by their, their, uh, concept cars i also love the way the the cd pillars echo like early 60s gm wagons yeah you know i i would love to see you know this body put onto the stinger platform that would be that would be fantastic i mean the stinger i think is a great looking car anyway but i think this would make it even better so you have a thing for wagons clearly um i Yes. I <laughs> um, Someone that writes about cars, I think that isn't that uh, kind of mandatory. It, it seems to be uh, like the starter kit. It doesn't doesn't have to be mandatory. It's kind of like um, it's it's like if every college student likes Led Zeppelin, is Led Zeppelin any good? And I'm just picking that. You, yeah, you know, you may not like Led Zeppelin. I'm just saying you're, you're starting to veer into heresy now. Dan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's sounding. Just, Vaguely, like maybe you don't like. I 
fucking love Led Zeppelin. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, the, the way you said that, it, it, um, it, you know. Yeah, sorry. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've grown to uh, appreciate the fact that some people don't like screaming vocals. I get it. That was never the reason why I listened to Zepp. It was always always the rhythm section yeah no bonham god i mean plays such authority um yeah anyway we can talk about that later (laughs) um what did you think of the amg uh project one thing everybody's sort of the internet went was like hey here's this thing it's this new amg concept car and then 10 minutes later everybody was like man that sucks it's ugly it's uh, just terrible i don't know it's not it's not pretty i don't think it's ugly though so really not the first you know tech i would say it's not even the first um supercar with a formula one engine i mean you know if you go back to uh the the ferrari f50 yeah you know what 20 years ago um the v12 in there was derived from the formula one engine of that era from the ferrari v12 f1 engine of that well right and wasn't even the f40 with its small turbocharged v8 kind of the same thing or very racing inspired Uh, yeah uh it was racing inspired but you know they they had never raced a twin turbo v8 um i mean that was that engine had no no direct uh lineage to any uh competition engine um, you know, and the, the F40, you know, uh, was derived from the, the 288 GTO, which was built as a group B car. So, I mean, it was, the F40 was developed as a competition car. It, it, you know, it was actually, it started life as the, uh, the GTO evolution. Right. Um, and you know, then when group B got canceled, they, you know, turned it into another model of its own. Um, but that, you know, that's the whole other story. Group B was the, wasn't group B the best? Group, like, oh, it was amazing. Uh, all the best stuff, all of the things I love came from Group B. Like, e- the Ford RS200, yeah. the, the um, uh, Peugeot Turbo 6, 205 Turbo. The, the, the Volvo 240 Turbo was a Group B car. Was it? Really? I think so. I mean, maybe it was some other group, but it was, maybe I'm wrong. I think, I think that was a Group N uh, tour hmm. or Group A. Oh, Group A. It was Group A. Group A. Yeah. That's, it was group something. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was the Delta Integrale a, uh, a Group B car? Well, um, the, the Integrale came later. It was actually the Delta S4 was the Group B car. Right. And then, you know, they toned that down and, you know, eventually that, you know, the Integrale was uh, developed. Um, but, yeah, the S4, um, the Porsche 959 right. was, was a Group B car. The MG Metro 6R4, you know, <laughs> insane little <laughs> I mean, there was all kinds of crazy things that came out. In yeah, Group B was bonkers. I, 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 spe- I specifically remember the 959 was, was like sort of the pinnacle of Group B. And then, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that, you know, I mean, the, 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 the project, the AMG Project 1, eh, I'm not crazy about the way it looks. Um, you know, interesting. The the power. What's interesting about the powertrain is I I just saw something just came out today or yesterday. Um, that engine, you know, in testing on the uh, uh, the Mercedes F1 engine, uh, you know, which is a twin turbo 1.6 liter V6, or sorry, a single turbo 1.1.6 uh, liter V6. You know, with the the energy recovery systems they've got on there. They were doing some dyno testing, and they they've actually gotten that thing to get a uh, 
thermodynamic efficiency of over right yeah i saw that today too um that's crazy which is yeah i mean thing you know the the toyota prius you know is considered you know i mean that's like one of the most efficient internal combustion engines on the road today and that thing gets just over 40 percent efficiency yeah, and what that what that means is that you know they're turning forty percent of the energy in the fuel it burns into tractive effort, right? Into work, into for into work, right. that the, You know that the wheels are doing, and with the the Mercedes F one power plant, you know they've got that up over fifty percent, which is just insane. For I mean, you know, obviously it's not going to be as have the absolute efficiency of a Prius, you know, because it makes a thousand horsepower, um, but you know, still the you know to to be able to extract that much energy, you know, so there's there's clearly lessons to be learned from that that can be applied to production powertrains, you know, to improve the efficiency. And one you know one of those things is uh, adding the the heat recovery, uh, um, heat energy recovery, uh, using the uh, the turbocharger. Uh, you know, so that's that's one of the ways that they extract more uh, more of the energy. Well, yeah, I mean that's the thing that's always been the biggest issue with uh, making internal combustion efficient, right? Is is so much of the engine is just uh, or so much of the energy is lost to it's just heat, um, and to be able to to use that heat in some way um, has been the the trick, um, and and so. Uh, yeah, I I just think it's a cool car. I, I don't care how pretty it is. I, it's it's not. I guess it's not classically beautiful, which is fine. Like I, we expect concept cars, maybe or, or show cars, to just always be gorgeous. It's this is a a concept of a different stripe. This isn't even a, this isn't even a yeah. I mean, this they're going to be actually producing a batch of these. I'm not sure how many, but. Um, it's, I mean, it's going to be very low volume and crazy expensive, but uh, they are going to build some. I mean, it looks like it's it's got serious aero. Um, th- the way it's got like giant vents in the hood, so that you know that the air comes in the front and goes up the you know through heat exchangers and then just up over the roof from the hood. It just it it's a very engineery car. You look at it and you can see the engineering all over it, and I I like that, and I like that it doesn't have some damn throwback grill and round lights on it too it's <laughs> fine if that's what modern mercedes start to look like i'm down with that that's works for me um can we talk about how stupid the ferrari portofino name is i don't care how good the car is the name is dumb why it just it just sounds like some kind of 80s restaurant crap i don't know <laughs> go into the okay. portofino grill it's, it's it's my own internal bias i just don't like the name Okay. Sounds lame. It is a gorgeous It's car. beautiful. <laughs> I'm sure it's wonderful. It's better than the California ever was. Yeah. Well, California is also a stupid name, which I realize is a throwback, but it's just, yeah. Um, yeah. What else did you like from the show or what else stood out? Um, something that I thought was really interesting um, was the, uh, the Jaguar I-Pace uh, race car. Uh, the e- Jaguar I-Pace E-Trophy, uh, which is they announced uh, that Jaguar is going to be doing a single make uh, race series as a support series for Formula E starting next year. And they're going to use uh, a, a race prepped version of the I-Pace uh, electric crossover, um, which I think is is very interesting and I think um, could really help put a dent in uh, in Tesla and the Model X because 
you know, one of you know, one of the things that Tesla's built its brand reputation on is performance, but really that performance is actually very limited. Um, you know, you know, essentially they go, they're great at doing a quarter mile runs and zero to sixty, but they don't hand, you know, they don't handle very well, um, and over any sustained amount of driving, they actually start to lose a lot of performance very quickly uh, because the batteries and electronics and motors uh, start to overheat. And so it, it, you know, within a couple of minutes of hard driving, it actually has to scale back the, the, the control system has to scale back the performance pretty significantly. And, you know, putting, putting the I-Pace out there on the track and having them run lap after lap and seeing what kind of performance they can get out of these things, you know, on a track, uh, as opposed to just at a drag strip, um, you know, could be, you know, it could really demonstrate, you know, that the Jaguar, you know, is taking what they know about building fast cars and applied it to an EV. Um, and, you know, so you've got a, a true high performance EV here as opposed to just a high performance, you know, a, an electric drag racer. Yeah, Jaguar has seemed to go whole hog with the um, the electrification and the SUVs together. Um, I, and I think that's actually smart and, and, and very fascinating to watch. Um, I, I wonder what Jaguar is going to look like in five years. Um, but I'm certain that they're going to be here in five years because they're they're making changes. Um, yeah, well, they they also announced you know they're like Volvo and and we'll we'll be seeing other brands announcing the same thing that um, they're gonna their entire lineup is going to be electrified from 2020 onwards, which you know means doesn't mean they're all going to be electric, but they're all going to be at the very least hybrids. Right. Uh, probably probably 48 volt mild hybrids as a base setup, and then plug-ins and and battery electrics as the up-level model. It's just the way they've embraced it. Um, like wholeheartedly, which is it's it's surprising coming from a brand such as Jaguar, but maybe not because they're such a small brand that they they know it's sort of all or nothing. I, I don't know, um, but it's it's been uh, curious to watch. I, I think Motor Trend also noticed that the iPace that was on the show stand in Frankfurt seemed to be like the production version because uh, it had yeah well i mean we've we've been seeing there have been pictures popping up of the production version you know out testing you know both with camouflage but there's there's also been some photos that have shown up you know spy photos of you know like advertising photo shoots with the car you know in finished form um and there there was some speculation that they would show the production ipace uh at frankfurt but i think it sounds like they're gonna they may be holding it for the um the LA Auto Show uh, in November and show it there uh, where they showed the concept last year. Yeah. Um, I think the the last thing that I can think of that really stands out so much from Frankfurt is that BMW X7. X7. Which is just, <sighs> you know. That, what the hell were they? So here's my thought. This is is not for us. Like they'll sell them to people who want them because they're BMWs and they 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 lease the hell out of them. And like these these cars generate profit multiple times. Um, and because it's a BMW, it will get sold. Um, but I think I think BMW is saying well, what kind of styling really appeals to emerging markets. And I, by emerging markets, I mean what's going to sell in China that has a huge appetite for 
vehicles um, and a huge potential ongoing appetite for vehicles, especially high-end stuff. Although that may be cooling off somewhat. I, I think this is, is not necessarily designed to appeal quite as much or primarily to a Western audience, but more towards the, the places that own all our debt and therefore have all the money. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for BMW's sake, I hope it appeals to somebody. Yeah, it looks a lot more like a Chinese car to me. So, so I'm just thinking, yeah. you know. No, I think you're, you're probably right. Um, it, that's probably where most of them will end up. Um, well, that that in Beverly Hills. Yeah, and I mean, I, I can think of nothing more gauche and disgusting than Beverly Hills. That's not true. Yeah. I can, but. Uh, <laughs> South Beach, maybe. Yeah. My- uh, it just, it thought, yeah. Dallas. Oh, yeah, Dallas. But it's trucks in Dallas. That's true. Well, I mean, you know, this thing's as big as a truck. That's, that's true. That's true. But it's it's furrin. No. <laughs> I don't know. We should move on. Yes. <laughs> we can we can bash concept cars all day long. So, uh, yeah, um, there's been a couple of other developments. Uh, briefly, the NTSB talked about a Tesla autopilot crash, which dovetails nicely with the updated autonomous guidelines. Um, did you want to touch on those or do we want to just joke? Yeah. OK. All right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, on Tuesday morning, uh, just before uh, uh, Elaine Chow, the secretary of transportation, came to came here to Ann Arbor uh, to make an announcement at M City um, about updated uh, federal autonomous driving guidelines. Um, the NTSB issued its report uh, on the uh, the Josh Brown crash last year, and for those that don't recall, that was uh, in May of 2016. Uh, a Tesla owner named Josh Brown um, was going along going down a road in uh, in Florida in his Model S uh, with autopilot engaged at about 85 miles an hour and a truck uh, turned left across uh, across his path and autopilot failed to recognize that the truck was turning across its path across its path and just continued along its merry way um, going right underneath the trailer and slicing the top half of the car off and um, there was, you know, lots of speculation about uh, uh, what, you know, what was going on, you know, at the time that, you know, he may have been watching a movie or something like that instead of paying attention to the road like he should have been. Um, turns out, you know, there was no actual evidence of any of that. Um, the National Transportation Safety Board uh, did an investigation and it was their first investigation uh, in a case of automated or semi-automated driving. Um, and it was it was interesting to see what they you know what they came up with. You know the prior investigation by uh, NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, um, was uh, you know they they ruled in in you know that Tesla was not at fault. You know that uh, um, the system did what it was supposed to. Um, in in this case here. Um, NTSB took a, a little bit different approach to the problem. You know, they they did say that um, the system autopilot worked as it was supposed to, um, as you know, as it was designed to within you know, within its limitations. But they also called out the fact that you know the system, like other you know semi-automated systems, level two and, and level one systems, um, does have limits, and um, they called on car makers to be 
more more aggressive in both educating consumers as to what those limits are and also um you know, putting in safeguards to make sure that the systems can only be used where it's appropriate. You know, so, you know, Tesla had previously said that, you know, you know, autopilot should only be used on, you know, limited access, divided highways. Um, it shouldn't be used in, you know, in other conditions, you know, where there might be intersections and, and things like that or in cities. Um, but they didn't do anything to actually prevent drivers from using it that way from or from misusing it. And. So, you know, NTSB said, you know, manufacturers should be more proactive in making sure that the systems can only be used where they can actually work properly. Um, you know, and they they said, you know, they, they also said that the driver of this car, you know, was over reliant on the system because, you know, they expected it to be able to do more than it. Well, because it's called autopilot. Well, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, um, so, you know, they also called on manufacturers to um, do more in terms of driver monitoring, you know, and making sure that the drivers, you know, in a car like this, where it's not a a fully automated system where the driver is supposed to remain alert and ready to take over to make sure that those driver, you know, to monitor the driver and make sure that they are ready to take over if needed. And if not, you know, to, you know, bring the car to a safe stop if necessary. Um, so those are things that Tesla has not done yet. Um, and really, I think, you know, the first, you know, first manufacturer that's doing that is, is GM with Super Cruise. You know, they have both driver monitoring and geofencing in their system. Uh, and I'll actually be driving that on a, on a road trip in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I'll tell you how well it works. But um, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if other car makers, you know, resp- how they respond to this and you know, if they start to make some changes in their systems, uh, you know, some companies like BMW and Volvo and Mercedes Benz, you know, if they start to uh, add driver monitoring or geofencing to their systems to make sure that they can't be misused or to minimize the chances of them being misused. Well, GM is really used to being sued when they put technology in cars. So I think of if anybody, they're going to be the ones that either are the most responsible or the most conservative or consider those those cases of, you know, what's what's going to happen? Who's responsible here? Um, let's let's either, you know, make sure that we're indemnified or we we shift the responsibility to the consumer and in, in, in some way, just if that means making the system less capable or something like they're going to have to figure that out. Um, yep. This I, it's it's not a revelation though. Like it, it's it's kind of like you know when you when you don't do anything to really stop the perception that yes, this car can drive. And we like I'm getting this even still today. Is like people think that Teslas just drive themselves, and they're like the most sophisticated car, and they they are a very sophisticated car. And, and unfortunately, Tesla hasn't done anything to dissuade people. Right. From that opinion. And in fact, that the things that Elon Musk has said is have probably reinforced that uh, that opinion. Right. That's really irresponsible. And um, yeah, I. I, I think as a as a, a corporate entity, like you, you want to push the the I, Tesla certainly wants to push um, innovation. I get it, uh, and and it is a differentiator for their cars that they have this system and it's out there. Uh, and we've we've talked about how they're kind of using the public as beta testers, and they're, they're the public are willing beta testers because they don't know any better, largely. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing, you know. The, you know, the, in in uh, you know when you're doing medical testing, you know they have this concept of informed consent, you know, and 
the idea is, you know, when you're going to be testing something that puts you at risk, potentially puts you at risk, you know, you have to really understand what are those risks, you know, what can go wrong? What, what can this, what, it, what can whatever it is you're testing do and what can it not do? And, you know, you have to understand that before you get involved. And, you know, in the case of, of you know, autopilot and, and other systems, people really don't understand that. And, and that's why, you know, we need to do a better job of educating consumers as to what these systems can and cannot do. And I actually just uh, finished writing my October column for automotive engineering today, talking about that, you know, about how, how we, you know, one of the things we should take a look at doing is maybe standardizing the naming of these systems. I mean, you know, right now, you know, you've got marketers, you know, coming up with all kind, you know, all kinds of different branding. You know, I mean, just look at adaptive cruise control systems, you know, right. you some companies calling it radar cruise control, others call it um, smart cruise control, intelligent cruise or intelligent speed control. You know, so you've got all these different brand names for the, you know, for the same thing. Um, and they don't necessarily, yeah, in a lot of cases, you know, some of these, some of the, especially as you get into higher levels of automation like autopilot and drive pilot, um, you know, they don't, what they, what the systems can actually do is not really properly reflected in the, in the name. It's not, you know, we should be coming up with better, you know, names that describe the, the actual functionality of the system. Yeah, well, and I think they're all being generally oversold at this point. Um, and I don't think that's going to, going to change so much uh until there is some like we've got levels right we've got the levels to define the autonomy and I, that hasn't yeah, really caught on regular can well i mean it's it's caught on within the industry right regular people have no idea what any of that means. right i mean the car, car geeks like we've been talking about bmw platform numbers for years and normal people don't do that so i don't expect no. them to, to talk about uh the the level uh, numbers um but you know i i think that that's one thing like yes the the companies that sort of release this stuff blithely giving it some sort of clever name that that makes it sound like it's more amazing than it actually is it it is it's cool tech and it actually does does work uh quite well in in a large variety of situations but you know these the um the the secretary of transportation the dot hasn't really helped the situation because they're out there basically just blowing sunshine up everybody's ass too like oh these these 80 you know elaine chow herself her quote is like ads technology offers important social benefits by improving access to transportation independence and quality of life for those who cannot drive because of illness advanced age or disability like yes but you know she's also pointing out that um these these systems are the key to a future with, with fewer fewer traffic fatalities and, and more mobility i think the more mobility part is is right but I, it, we're not it's not like tomorrow and uh, yeah they they may the systems may also um reduce fatalities but i, I honestly think that that's not the autonomous driving stuff that's reducing fatalities it's Blind spot detection, autom automatic braking, stability control. It's it's all of the stuff that's that's pretty much already in cars that is going to really reduce fatalities. And, and that kind of stuff is going to be more effective at it than a car that drives itself, you know? Um, well, I think, you know, over the longer term, I think, you know, highly automated driving will 
or it certainly has the potential to dramatically reduce um, fatalities and, and crashes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, we're never going to get to zero. I mean, there's always going to be things that happen that we can't anticipate. Um, you know, and, and, you know, systems will fail, you know, hardware will fail from time to time. But I think there is a, there is a huge potential for dramatically reducing fatalities and crashes uh, and injuries. You know, and there's also, you know, the societal benefit of, of making mobility accessible to more people. I mean, you know, on Tuesday, when Elaine Chow was was here, you know, one of the other speakers um, that was there was a gentleman named Mark Riccobono, who I was on a panel with him back in January at uh, the automobility uh, conference that ran along with the Detroit Auto Show. And Mark is the uh, uh, president of the National Federation of the Blind. You know, and, you know, I mean, if you're blind, you know, having the ability, you know, today, you know, you've got to rely on taxis or, you know, other services that aren't that reliable uh, a lot of times, you know, and if you can have access to an autonomous vehicle to take you wherever you need to go, whenever you need to go, having that, that freedom, you know, the same kind of freedom that you and I have, you know, to just get in the car and go anywhere we want, anytime we want. Um, you know, th I mean, that, th that's, you know, that, that's hugely important, you know, especially, you know, if you want to be able to go to work, go to school, you know, wherever, um, you know, having that, uh, that flexibility to do that. And, you know, whether you're blind or um, you have some other um, reason why you can't drive, um, you know, that's that's hugely important for society. And I think that's hugely beneficial. And, you know, but. As you said, it's going to take a long time before we get there. This is not something that's going to happen in the next two or three years. Well, yeah, and the the safety the safety guidelines don't seem to be there yet. And from from what a lot of the talk is, is is, is like voluntary. Um, oh yeah, it's all voluntary. There there are no there are no regulations. Yeah. now covering automated vehicles. The the you know, like even the the bill that was passed by the House of Representatives last week, you know, mainly what that does is it provides exemptions for up to 100,000 vehicles per year from from manufacturers um, to you know bypass the regulations that require cars to have a steering wheel and pedal. Yeah, see, that's uh, what I don't of a I I don't really want uh, you know representatives or or, or senators. Uh, passing bills on this stuff without the formation of some sort of like select working group or something of actual experts well, to craft. I, I wouldn't want any politicians, any current politicians <laughs> involved in, in formulating that. But actually, the the the, let, the bill that they passed in a lot of ways I think is actually pretty good. One of the things that's that's in there, surprisingly enough, and I'll be shocked if it remains in there in whatever the final form of the bill is, is assuming it gets passed by the Senate and signed uh, into law. But one of the things that's in there right now is it calls on uh, NHTSA to start developing some safety regulations, some motor vehicle safety standards for autonomous vehicles, you know, within two years after the law is enacted. Um, you know, and that, you know, <laughs> con you know, Congress actually calling on NHTSA to, you know, the current Congress calling on NHTSA to actually enact some new regulations is shocking. But, you know, they that's what that's what the House of Representatives passed last week. Um, and, you know, I, I 
when I was at the event on Tuesday, you know, I, I chatted with uh, some people from a number of different manufacturers and suppliers. Um, and, you know, the, the general consensus is that, you know, we should have some regulations, you know, covering, you know, that set some baseline performance requirements for these systems, you know, in terms of what sorts of things need to be able to be detected, you know, in certain conditions and that sort of thing. You know, much as we do today with braking systems, lighting systems, um, occupant protection systems, you know, some, some baseline standards. But, you know, what we don't want we don't want to specify any particular technologies. We ju we just need to say, you know, whatever technology you choose needs to be able to do this. Right, and I think that that's sort of what I'm I'm afraid of by having people who who aren't really uh, equipped to understand what they're they're legislating about. Sort of say like it must be this. No, I, I think the 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 end goal is fine. Like it must be able to do this. Great. Now go figure out how to do it. And that's that's where sort of well, the and Congress isn't going to do that. And, you know, I mean, they, the, the, the bill that was passed, you know, doesn't 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 try to specify what should be done or even what sort of regulations. Just that NHTSA has to start looking at formulating some regulation. Yeah. And I think, honestly, for me, the, the biggest issue isn't isn't even the self-driving tech like I, that'll get sorted. It's um, it's more about. Uh, w what are we doing with with driver education? Because I feel like I, I, I'm, it's probably a tired subject for anybody who's heard me yapping about it. But like, I think that that's key to it's like immediately having an impact on reducing um, uh, incidents and fatalities. They're up over the last few years because apparently we need the dopamine hit of playing with our phones at every stoplight. And I see it every morning. Um, on my commute and it's it's just ridiculous i i don't know that training people better will really have a huge impact on that but it, it's it's worth trying to a degree i don't i don't know um and also like the the uh, everything you think about like v to v and, and v to x like everything's going to be connected so there's that that um cyber part of it and then data logging is my data my data or is, you know, the automaker going to give me a really good price on the car because they've got a deal which they haven't disclosed that just it it logs and aggregates my trips and then sells that to somebody who wants to sell people like me stuff. And then I wind up seeing advertising in some other way like that terrifies me just it, it's not it's not even that i'm afraid of it it's uh and so it's, it's less that it terrifies me than it aggravates me the idea of <laughs> like my data is not my own or potentially is not my own those, those are i think things that are much harder to solve and that bug me even more well actually right now the policies that all the manufacturers have is that the the data that comes from the vehicle is owned by the vehicle. You know, it belongs to the, the vehicle. For now. So for, for now. But when you're leasing a car, what is it like? You know what I'm saying? That, yeah. I mean, when when you have, you know, whether you buy or, or lease a car, you know, if it's your car, if, it, if it's titled to you, um, you know, you own that data. And anything that they do with it, you know, they, um, you know, you have to opt in for it to be used for anything. Now, 
looking you know, looking out a few years, you know, five, 10, 15 years, when we don't own our vehicles, if we're using autonomous mobility services, now it's a totally different situation because you don't own that vehicle. Somebody else owns it and we have to figure out, you know, what do, does the the data still belong to whoever owns the vehicle, whether that's, you know, Maven or Waymo or, you know, you know Lyft or some other uh, company that's operating that service? Or does it belong to the individual that's riding in that vehicle? See, the data, in my opinion. I, I think it's probably going to be the former. Right. I don't think you're going to own the data from the vehicle. Which in that case. I don't like that because... The data wouldn't be generated if it were not for my activity. Therefore, it's my data, so I own it. <laughs> you know, like that. That would that would be the ideal case, but uh, realistically, I don't see that. Of happening. course not, because they can't sell it if I own it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Damn it. Um, yeah, I, I I envision a future where I will be walking and biking a lot more. <laughs> yeah. I mean. What what could possibly right. go wrong with somebody having having your data? I mean, you know, what you think somebody's going to hack into a credit bureau and you know steal one hundred and forty three million people's uh, right? You know, personal data. Right. That that couldn't. No, happen. no. And I mean, like, and 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 why? What's the worst case scenario? Right. People wonder why I don't want to have like ways on my phone and stuff. Like, no. I'm I'm not a tinfoil hat guy. But just I just don't want my information out there. I I don't know. It's just a, I, I I'm not. I, I don't want to go live in a hole in my backyard. But like so, some of this stuff is like, do you really want companies knowing this much? But I think part the disgusting part is it's just like it's it's boxed up and sold, and I don't see any of that benefit. I am the product that bugs the hell out of me. So there. Well, you know, I mean, they're. They're they're trying to you know they're they're developing services that they hope will that you will see as being beneficial. I see, but I don't I don't want their damn service. I don't I don't, I don't want and like so many of the services now that are services. I don't want Uber. I don't want Drizzly. I don't want what's the one with the 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 uh, they deliver lunch. Um, Scrub. Yeah, sort of like I forget what it is. Yeah, uh, there's a bunch of them. Um, yeah. I, I don't try to pay me with Venmo. Get the hell out of here. Give me cash money. Like I don't want any of that stuff. What is this cash? Is right. Like I, I envision a future where at some some point I will try to pay for something with a five dollar bill and I will get arrested because only dissidents use paper money. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's the chip that's you know implanted in your. I don't, I don't want the chip. Give them, a, yeah. give them a nugget of gold. Yeah, and that's what it's going to be. Like, all of a sudden, I'm going to turn into one of those crazy nut jobs that's putting all my money in gold uh, just because it's, like, the most secure investments. Yeah, fine. Um, you know, gangsters and pirates uh, put all their, their – they don't have any, like, you know, assets other than the jewelry, which they can hawk for fast money. Uh, anyway. We've beaten this one to death. Um, speaking about hawking for fast money, though, um, those Volkswagens that are out by you, uh, there was a bunch of them stolen. Yeah, apparently a few dozen, you know, uh, the Pontiac Silverdome, uh, which was the former home of the Detroit Lions and has been unused for the past. Seems seems like an unlucky place. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I mean, over the past, uh, you know, what, nine, ten months since they start, VW started buying back uh, diesels, uh, they've been storing them in various locations around the country, and there's about 9,000 of them parked in the parking lot at the Silverdome. Uh, well, it turns out a, a, a few dozen of them um, didn't quite make it, either didn't make it to the Silverdome at all, or um, left the Silverdome parking lot prematurely, um, and ended up at uh, some auction sites uh in indiana i think indiana so they weren't they weren't like uh sold to to like recyclers and scrapped and and cut up for parts no, no they were they were resold you know they they somebody gener you know whoever got the cars generated some fake titles for them and sent them to auction and they were resold you know a some of them were resold. Others were intercepted before they could be sold um, because what happened was um, the the VINs, uh, VW is tracking the VIN numbers, the vehicle identification numbers of all of these diesel vehicles. And when somebody tried to register them again after they were, after they were sold, you know, these VINs popped up in VW's system again because you know, they, they, <laughs> it's part of the, the where they have to buy back these cars. They have to keep track of them because they can't be resold until they're repaired. Um, and these have obviously not been repaired. And, you know, suddenly they start seeing duplicate VIN numbers in their system. And uh, so they contacted the authorities, the uh, Oakland County Sheriff's Department, and started looking into it. So they're still investigating. They don't know. It, you know, they suspect it was some kind of inside job. Uh, you know, so some of these cars, you know, just got redirected and resold instead. Yeah. Um I figured, hey, there's nine thousand diesels here. Who's just going to miss sixty of them? Right. That's. I mean, that's a, that's a great scam. But so somebody who bought one of these cars now, does it just get repossessed? Do they know where the cars are? Do they? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, it's not clear what's going to happen to them. I mean, clearly, the um, they you know they don't have um, uh, you know. The, they're you know they weren't bought with legitimate titles. Did you buy one? Because I know you were fond of your Volkswagen no. Diesel. <laughs> no, uh, we, we no longer we no longer possess a Volkswagen Diesel. Okay. We we went with, we went with Honda. So it wasn't it wasn't yeah nobody we know. I I'm just trying to think like yeah. how would you even buy one of these cars like just like you know it, it it's going to set off alarms the whole deal is going to look shady the thing is not, well the thing is not all of the you know not all of the cars have been you know not not every TDI owner you know opted in for the buyback you know i mean i think that i think VW's bought back about 300,000 of the cars so far um you know out of you know 400 and i think 450,000 or so that were eligible um you know but there's still probably you know upwards of 100,000 out there still running around and you know i mean the, there's nothing to stop those people from selling them to somebody else you know or sending them you know trading them in you know they don't have to go back to Volkswagen uh at some point they will have to be repaired uh but uh you know the, it's you know, just because a you know a used TDI is go, you know going down an auction line, doesn't necessarily mean that you know it's not legit. It could it could very well be legit. Yeah. Although I mean, you usually the you know the cars at auction are 
you know, the ones that, that go to auction are usually used cars that, you know, dealers have taken as trade-ins, you know, and uh, they decide, you know, we don't need these car you know, these are cars we don't need an inventory or else they're off-lease cars. And, you know, so they go to auction and they usually end up getting bought by other dealers um, and then, um, you know, cleaned up, fixed up and then sold to consumers. Um, so, I mean, it's not generally individuals selling the cars here. So, you know, it's I, I don't know. Um, I have no idea how this is all going to play out in the end. New Volkswagen diesels for everyone, because <laughs> I, I mean, that's the only way we're going to be made whole. I think we should all just get a diesel car. It should be a, a birthright. It's never going to never going to happen. Um, Speak, speaking of um, <laughs> one, one of the uh, listener questions that we had come in on uh, Twitter this evening before we started recording asked uh, for uh, some thoughts on the Mazda Sky Active X engine, which uh, some some of the folks that went to uh, Frankfurt this week uh, prior to the show they got a, a technical briefing from Mazda and had a chance for uh, an early drive in uh, one of the development mules that, are, that they have running over there. And so we learned a little bit more of the, the details of uh, Mazda's uh, kind of gas diesel crossover engine. Um, and it uh, turns out it's, um, you know, one of the, you know, HCCI, the concept of homogeneous charge compression ignition, uh, which is basically trying to make uh, uh, a car that runs on gasoline um, operate more like a diesel and get diesel efficiency uh, is an idea that's been around for a while. A bunch of car makers have been working on it, um, but none have brought it to production up until now because, you know, the, the way HCCI works, you know, is, um, you know, compression ignition in general. You know, if you remember your, your chemistry, you know, if you take a, a volume of, of gas and you compress it into a smaller volume, um, the pressure is going to go up and the temperature is going to go up. And if you do that with air in the cylinder of an engine um, and you put air in and then you close the valves and you compress, you know, the piston goes up, you compress it. Eventually, it's going to get hot enough that if you add some fuel, it will combust. And that's what compression ignition is. Um, with uh, HCCI, you know, what, what they do is, you know, you mix in the, the air, the fuel uh, as the air is coming in and um, it gets blended together, uh, trying to create a, a homogeneous mixture, you know, a, basically, you know, an even distribution of the gasoline vapor across the air in a, in a lean, a very lean mixture of air and fuel. Um, and um, that, uh, you know, one of the issues is that works great at light load conditions and at lower speeds, but nobody's ever been able to get it to work well at higher load conditions. And so for all these engines, they've had to be able to switch back and forth between doing compression ignition during light load conditions and then um, regular spark ignition uh, during heavier load conditions. And, you know, those the system, you know, they've, they've had some uh, issues with, you know, the, that transition between the two modes and, you know, back about, uh, eight or nine years ago, I had a chance to drive a couple of, uh, GM prototypes with HCCI engines and they were, they were okay, but they weren't really refined enough and consistent enough for production. And so they, you know, the GMs continued to research the, the technology, but they've never put it into production. And so Mazda came up with a really interesting approach 
to doing this that's a little bit different from what anybody else has done before. And they don't actually call it an HCCI engine. They call it um, spark-controlled spark compression. Yeah, which, like, it's not really HCCI. It's, it's like a very in, – in reading the description, I guess uh, – it almost doesn't sound like it's compression ignition. It just sounds like it's a, a, the latest evolution of what's been going on for years, getting a locally rich mixture near the spark plug um, and having it lean elsewhere like that. That's not new. That's something that's uh, it's prob probably it's, it's kind of it's kind of a hybrid. Yeah, um, it, it, it is compression ignition, you know, because what what they're doing is, you know, um, when they when they're in the compression ignition mode, um, when the intake valves open, you know, you're drawing in air and um, adding fuel to it, and it's mixing that into a homogeneous mixture. And so, right, and that's actually what makes this much harder than than diesel too, because with diesel, you heat the air first, and then you squirt the fuel in, and it it right. burns. And the air is the air is hot enough that you get that spontaneous. Ignition. Right, this you've got the fuel in there, so you've got to really be careful. Um, because it could detonate and that's like, there's, right. you're not squirting the fuel in after the air is hot. You're squirting the fuel in, squeezing it. And, and, uh, that makes the mixture homogeneous, but it also makes it much more difficult to control. Right. And so, you know, it's, you have, you have to really, uh, manage the pressure in the cylinder very carefully, um, you know, to, to be able to control when it's going to ignite. And so this is what makes what, what Mazda is doing so interesting, you know, cause, um, once the intake valve closes, the piston goes back up and compresses it, it heats it up, gets it up, um, close to where it will self ignite. And then they spray in just a, a little bit more fuel in there at just the right time, right by the spark plug and ignite that so you have a like you said a very a very localized rich mixture right by right next to the spark plug and the key is the timing of when you do that when you spray in that fuel and then um ignite that with the spark plug and what that's actually doing when when you do that it's actually creating a pressure wave so that bit of fuel that's burning it's not actually the flame front of that fuel that's igniting that mixture, that homogeneous mixture, but it's actually just creating a pressure wave that um, is then increasing the pressure on that homogeneous mixture to the point where it gets hot enough that it will ignite itself. So it's it's just like it's that last little bit, that last little push over the edge. It's very clever. Yeah. Very clever. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, br it's brilliant. And, you know, if it actually works as well as they claim and works consistently, you know, I mean, this is this is a brilliant solution. I mean, this is this is one of those things that, you know, over the years, Mazda has always come up with these really what seem like harebrained ideas and somehow they make them work. And you know, this, <laughs> it's like they're this one is really clever, like the wankle. <laughs> yeah, well, like, like the wankle, you know, I mean, even the existing Sky Active engines. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, they've, they've, they've done some really creative things over the years. I mean, they were the first ones to do a production Miller cycle engine. Oh, that's right. In the, uh, in the Amati back in, uh, in the mid nineties. Um, so this is, this is a really clever idea. And, um, you know, it, it takes a, you know, to do that, to spray that fuel in, um, you know, when they're near top dead center, you know, that high pressure, they need a much higher pressure, um, fuel injection system than you typically use with a gasoline engine. So like with modern engines with direct injection uh, for gasoline engines, because they're spraying it in um, when the intake valve is open and the air is coming in, um, those are typically running at about 2,000 PSI. 
and for modern diesel engines, um, common rail diesel engines, those are running at about anywhere from 25 to 30,000 PSI. Because as you said, you know, it doesn't spray the fuel in until you've already compressed the air. Um, for this one, they're running uh, somewhere between 7,500 and 10,000 PSI. So it's higher than gasoline direct injection, but much lower than, um, than with uh, modern diesel engines. And so that, you know, that, that's the main thing that's adding cost to this thing is having that higher pressure uh, system in there. But it, it's still going to be much cheaper than a diesel engine uh, to manufacture. They figure it's going to come in about halfway between a, a gas and a diesel engine. Um, and then, you know, it doesn't need all the after-treatment systems that modern diesels do because it's, it's not producing the NOx and the particulates like like diesel engines are doing. Um, so, you know, it's it's going to be it's going to be interesting to watch this to see see how well this works. I'll be I'll be curious to get a chance to drive this. It's yeah. Well, and the the thing too that I didn't realize was it has a roots blower on it as well. So it's, it's yeah. Um, and this this is part of what they're using to manage um, you know to to keep the 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 air fuel mixture so lean that homogeneous mixture to keep it lean is you know they've got a clutched electromagnetically clutched roots blower that they can use to um, help manage the air fuel mixture um, so you know under uh, light load conditions or actually sorry under heavier load conditions and at higher speeds they can use that to pump more air into the engine to keep that that mixture lean and allow it to run in this uh, S, uh, SCCI mode. So is that like uh, is that like they just ensure that there's an oversupply of air at any time? Yeah. Yeah. So they can just sort of bleed off and they can think and fine tune. So that's that's almost like the old uh, two stroke diesels that had a and, and they had a roots. They had a positive displacement blower mm -hmm. um, for this almost the same reason. Kind of. Yeah. And then and then even when it's um, when it's running in uh, spark mode in regular spark combustion mode, um, it's still running uh, as a Miller cycle engine, you know, so, you know, Miller cycle, uh, for those that don't know, is basically an Atkinson cycle with um, with boosting right. added. So with either a supercharger or turbocharger added on. Um, so you've got the late intake valve closing that gives you a sh effectively a shorter compression stroke than the um, expansion right yeah. uh expansion stroke um and but that when you're you know the atkinson cycle is very efficient but uh you lose a lot of torque production and so adding the blower on there uh actually helps to enhance the torque so you get better performance that way without sacrificing the the efficiency so much um and then you know the the other thing uh, in the uh in the motor trend article that frank marcus wrote about this um you know basically you know describe you know this this whole thing both in compression ignition and spark ignition modes you know essentially what they've done is they've they've figured out a way to create an engine with variable compression because you know that timing of in compression ignition you know the timing of when you spray that fuel and ignite it um, to create that pressure wave is effectively giving you depending on how much fuel you put in there and when you put it in you can control how much pressure you're getting and affect what the effective compression ratio is going to be so you create a variable compression ratio engine without 
the the crazy um, linkage that Infinity has on the right. variable compression engine that actually moves the the pistons up and down relative to the, the right, and and with much finer control than than an earlier version of a variable compression engine, which is just forced induction. But that's that's a lot more reactive. <laughs> <laughs> in, yeah. in its its implementation a lot more basic a lot more more rudimentary yeah i don't i don't think that those like crazy contraptions with extra linkages in the in the um the the uh connecting rods and stuff to, to actually move things around are gonna really be long-lived it just seems like a whole bunch of reliability stuff that is it's like a fantastical flying machine like yeah it it works but it's kind of it's kind of medieval versus yeah especially when you compare it yeah to this thing. yeah um no I, I i'm really really even more curious now because it it just seems like it's so well thought out and so uh so carefully done um that i i'm sort of surprised that nobody else has really hit upon the same combination of of factors because you know it's always one of those things like elegant engineering and 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 like an elegant solution generally each piece of it is sort of like a, a forehead slap like oh of course um but when they put it together and then they fine-tune it it just becomes more than the the sum of its parts it, it's very elegant and i'm so i'm impressed by that and um uh, I'm a little surprised that it took Mazda to bring it to market, but because I'm fond of Mazda, I'm glad <laughs> at the same time. I'll, I'll, next time I run into uh, Dan Nicholson, the head of uh, power powertrain engineering at GM, I'll be curious to ask him about his thoughts on this because the last time I talked to him uh, a month or two ago about the uh, the Equinox diesel, um, you know, I, I asked him, you know, what he thought about what Mazda was doing. And at that time, you know, none of us knew yet, you know, the details of how they were doing this. And he he said, you know, that they were they were still working on the on you know the um, HCCI, but they still they hadn't come up with the the secret sauce to really make it work right for production, and it looks like Mazda may have done that this time. Yeah, and the rest of the car is is um, improved as well. So it's not just a new engine from 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 the article that uh, Frank Marcus wrote too. Like it's a good article. Um, we'll we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, yep. But it's it. Yeah, it's it's again it's it's Mazda's sort of commitment to um to, to Kaizen or uh you know continuous improvement. Um which is I think part of why the three has been such a darling for us for, for so many years too. It's just, it's a it's a good car. It's well well engineered, well thought out. Um and, and and who you know, Mazda could use its own sort of special differentiator more than just about anyone too, being a, such a small and now independent automaker yeah and you know it's, it's curious you know when you when you see stuff like this it's no wonder that you know they you know when robert davis was speaking last uh, last month at the uh, management briefing seminars he said you know we should really reconsider you know mandating specific technologies like like electrification and just focus on you know 
here's the targets we want for, you know, energy use or CO2 emissions or whatever, uh, however you want to do it um, and say, you know, here's here's your target. You know, use whatever technology works to get there, because, you know, clearly they've got some some cool ideas for how to get there without having to resort to big heavy. Yeah, well, I mean, it's very much like we were talking about with the the autonomous uh, stuff as well to define the goals. And then let the, you know, let the market innovate. It's that, that sort of free market kind of thing, right? Um, yep. So, yeah. And, and if, if we can get there with efficiency without having to dig, you know, battery raw materials out of the ground and make batteries, it's, it's kind of a win in some ways. So, cool. I think that's, that's about it. Uh, we did have some, um, a couple of Twitter questions. Oh, you know what? I did dig up uh, some questions from our, our uh, phone messages. So here's a couple. I'll dig up more, um, but the, these are two good starter ones. So the first question we had, the very first voicemail that was like usable, uh, wasn't testing or a hang up or something, was uh, why we are not on the Zoom marketplace. And th- th- that was for the Autobot podcast. Um, <laughs> we might have missed the boat on that one, but we'll try with this one, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, actually, uh, that, um, pr- the Zoom Marketplace has been gone for years. Yeah. Um, so. um, that voicemail, I believe, was from 2009. Um, yeah. So here's. I, I, I actually, I actually do still have a Zoom HD in a drawer. You know, so this is the thing. The Zoom actually like had some interesting features. It was not terrible to use, and it sounded better than an iPod. Yeah, well, the last one they did, the Zune HD, was actually quite a good MP3 player. I mean, unfortunately, by the time it came out in like 2009 or even 2010, maybe, you know, the smartphone was already taking over from standalone MP3 players anyway. Yeah. But it was it was actually a really nice, nice little device. And um, my son used it for a couple. Yeah, I still use my Sony. Um, it's the, the HD5, the network Walkman. Um, which is, it's basically like a teeny tiny little laptop hard drive. Uh, and it sounds fantastic and I can load it up with wave or if I want more music, I can use a tracks, which is the Sony compression scheme. It's like MP3, but it's a little different. Yeah. Won't work on it because it's Sony and that's what Sony does, but Sony makes great stuff and they always have. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I, people see it and they're like, what's that? I'm like, that's an MP3 player. I'm like, what is this, like 2002? So, yeah, that's me being an iconoclast. Um, so the other question we had from 2009 was, this is a good used car question now. Uh, 2010 Malibu LTZ versus the 2010 Ford Fusion SEL, which is better? And also, hey, sync looks really good. Hope it works. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's see, 2009, that would have been uh, prior to my Ford Touch. So that was just the original version right. of Sync. So it actually wasn't bad. It, I mean, it was it was okay. Um, hmm, Fusion, so first-gen Fusion versus 2010 Malibu LT. The 2010 Malibu, was that was the, that's the, the one where they actually restyled the long wheelbase of the funky-looking one, right? The, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that. So I that like was, that Malibu, but I don't think that's aged as well as the Fusion has. Maybe it has. Um, no, it's it's still a good looking is car. It, is it is it like in terms of reliability and durability? How is it? Or I guess it's not. 
I'm not aware of any yeah. issues with it aside from the ignition switch. Is that Epsilon? Yes. Uh, yeah, it was it was Epsilon um, 2. Uh, or no, actually, it was first generation. Uh, that Epsilon. car's got all the bugs worked out. If I pick either one of those, those are both good cars. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if you find a good price on one, you know, in good condition, you know, uh, you probably won't, you know, you probably get one pretty cheap for either case. Yeah, I mean, I think the Fusion SEL, or just like the Fusion of that generation is probably a little bit sportier feeling because of the Mazda in it. Um, yeah, the LTZ, uh, that would have been a 3.6 liter V6. So um, probably more powerful, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, either one, either one's you know probably a good choice for a, a nice you know used midsize sedan. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the Fusion. Pick the Fusion. Um, okay. Because I like why not. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. So um, from our Twitter questions, we had an interesting one, uh, sort of d- discussing. You know, we talk about EVs, but we don't necessarily consider them from the point of apartment renters. And that's still something to overcome. Do you have you heard or, or do you know sort of like what the uh, what the prevailing wisdom is about how that's going to to work? I mean, there's there's a lot of people, you know, cities are getting more dense and that's where a lot of the the the, the wealth is, is becoming concentrated, too. So like the buying power um, and, and EVs are really great for cities. But if you rent in a city, you, you may not be able to charge an EV. Yeah, I mean that that that's the the fundamental dichotomy with with electric vehicles. You know, um, the place the place where they make the most sense, you know, is in the city. You know, where you know that's where you get the most congestion and you have the most air quality problems, and where an EV can can make a, you know a significant benefit in terms of pollution. But it's also the place where it's actually in in a lot of ways the least practical to own one. But by the same token, it's also the place where it's least practical to own any vehicle. Right. Um, yeah, because a lot of people in dense urban environments tend to live in apartments, and so owning a owning a car is problematic, uh, and owning an EV even more so because you typically don't have a garage. Even if you know, in a lot of cities, even if you have a house. You know, a lot of times it won't have a garage. You're going to be relying on street parking. So, um, you know, it, it if you live in an apartment, um, basically it comes down to the, you know, the owners and management of the apartment. If, you know, if it's a building that's got, um, you know, its own parking facilities, um, you might be able to uh, convince the, the building management to, you know, to either... Uh, install some uh, EV chargers or to allow you to install one, you know, to have one installed, you know, at your own expense. Uh, but basically, you know, it's going to come down to a case by case basis. You know, if you, if you have, you know, uh, if the, if you live in a building that has parking and, you know, if you live in New York, for example, chances are you probably don't, uh, you're probably relying on street parking, in which case, you know, owning an EV is often going to be a non-starter. Um, unless you happen to, you know, be driving it to a workplace that has, you know, charging at work, in, in which case you could probably, you might be able to get by using that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a real problem. And that's, again, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons behind the movement towards, uh, mobility services, you know, where, you know, the, the vehicles are part of fleets and they can be charged, you know, parked and charged remotely somewhere. And, you know, you don't have to deal with that. problem. Yeah. Well, there's that, that whole thing about turning, 
turning like everything about life into a service, um, which just great, great on me. But yeah, I mean, life. At- yeah, it's it's alas. Um, I, I think that that uh, if you're in a city and you're you're affluent, you know, you, you like because because luxury apartments are you know very much a huge thing um to the point where we have to actually have some some laws in place to say like no no no, you can't make them all luxury units you need to make the city affordable for the people that actually do serve you your coffee and do provide you the services that you pay for with your smartphone on demand um you know it's going to be very easy for the premium folks to afford that like parking spot with a you know extra fee for the charger rental or the garage floor with the charger like those things the, the premium folks are not going to have an issue and that's really like that's where that stuff's going to deploy first unfortunately if you are uh sort of less well off you got a, lo- a lot longer road to travel um it it's just it's it's prohibitively expensive to buy an ev to a to a large like a, a new one uh, they're all premium cars unless you get something like a leaf uh, or a bolt. Um, but then you've got the problem of like where where do you charge it? And and that's I think that's difficult to overcome at this point. And so it, it, until we commit to that in some way um, and, and there are there are companies working on like charge points trying to to really get proliferation of the, their infrastructure out there. But until that commitment is made. I, yeah, I mean, once you get the little people <laughs> um, on your technology, it's going to it's going to grow. Um, if it's just the, the wealthy, like, I, I don't know, it's still kind of just like a play thing to a to a large degree. Yeah, you know, I mean, there are, you know, for example, you know, there, in some cities, there are um, uh, apartment buildings that are uh, working with, for example, car sharing uh, companies like Maven, for example, one of the services that Maven offers, that's GM's car sharing service. Uh, they have, you know, a couple of different, you know, programs. They've got their, their original, you know, conventional car sharing service that anybody can join and, and, you know, have short-term rentals of cars. They also have a program called Maven Home where they work with um, building management companies uh, that have parking facilities and, you know, they will supply uh, a fleet of vehicles for that building, um, including, you know, including EVs and, you know, they'll put in the, the EV charging equipment and everything. And then, um, you know, this is, this would, it's set up, you know, to be one of the perks of living in a building. Like, you know, you might live in a building that has a swimming pool or has fitness facilities. One of the things that some buildings are starting to do is provide, uh, sharing car sharing fleets, you know, that are specifically for the residents of that building, you know, so that, um, you know, anybody living in that building can reserve a car, take it, you know, to do their various trips to wherever and bring it back and park it. And so that's, that's <laughs> one way to get into an EV is if you live in a building. Right. Like a a com- communist block. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're targeting, you know, buildings at, you know, various price points, not just affluent buildings, right. you know, so that in, in a way that, that, you know, that makes, um, access to uh to vehicles more affordable because you know for example in in new york you know if you live in manhattan you know and you want to own a vehicle you're basically looking at about you know at least 800 to a thousand dollars a month just to park a car in Manhattan. you know to get a parking space yeah but see manhattan is like it's a special case Uh, manhattan is supported by um 
much better public transportation infrastructure than many mid-sized cities. Like, uh, like, what does Omaha have, for example? You know, like it's it's still a city. What kind of, or even like you know, we we saw with with um, Hurricane Harvey, Houston is is very car centric. There's still public transportation and, and public infrastructure there, but like, you got to have a car <laughs> in that city. Um, so so solving those i think is is a key. like manhattan is manhattan like that's that's fine um and it's it's ridiculous to have a car there and then the the uh, i'm not, i'm not spending a thousand bucks to park a car forget it that's crazy <laughs> yeah and <Yeah, not>, no. <laughs> <laughs> i think i just what i just killed the conversation <laughs> uh my coffee kicked in i'm ready to argue sam um, right. All right, so hit us up at uh, WheelBearingsCast on Twitter. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. I am at Boston underscore Auto. You are, and I'm at Sam Abuel Sam. All right, and we are at WheelBearings.media. Otherwise, and uh, we will be back in a week. All right, see you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.